0: Hi, my name is Daniel Pink. I'm the author of The Power of Regret, and I am excited to be on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hi
1: everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today is kind of unique and special. Uh, we're doing this live in front of a studio audience. If I had an applause sign, I'd say applause. We're excited to be here, and also um, I wanna uh, give a special thanks to our sponsors, uh, WeWork, for providing the space. We'll, we'll take a little sponsor break, maybe in the middle of this uh, uh, podcast or show to, uh, to, to make some other details. But um, Dan, I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? This,
0: this job of being your guest or you mean... just being a writer?
1: This series is really, it tells, we tell origin stories. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's bring it back to the chronology. Great.
0: Great. How did you get here? It's a long story. Yeah. And it's a nonlinear story. We've got about an hour. So. And yeah, so and it's not that interesting of a story. But anyway, let me do it. Let me do it quickly. So I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, of all places. When I was five, my parents moved to Columbus, Ohio. Okay. They took me with them. Fortunately, and um, and I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in in Columbus, Ohio, and very middle class, middle middle of the road. And one of the formative experiences of my childhood, believe it or not, it's weird, It just life is circumstantial, is libraries. I happened to live near a library in the little town that I lived in, and it was a really good library. Columbus, the city of Columbus had a great public library system. The state of Ohio has one of the best library systems in America, and the reason for, yeah, woo, OH. H. Um, and one of the um, and one of the reasons for that is the, is because libraries are well funded in Ohio, and so um, so I went to the library a lot as a kid, and I don't think if I had had, not, if I had grown up in a place that didn't have this robust public library system, I would not have become a writer. So that's like the that's like the the really solid origin story because going to going to this these these cathedrals of books, all the time and seeing this and saying wow it's so cool like somebody had something in their head and then they put it on a paper and then it got into my head whoa that's crazy yeah. and like you learn stuff and you're entertained and you you see different parts you see, you see different things and it's like wow how cool would that be if one day there was a book you know among the hundreds of thousands in this library that you know under p you know and, and truly when i had my first book come out this is going to sound ridiculous I'm I totally not joking here. I was pumped when I realized I had a dewey decimal number <laughs> yeah three three two point seven four yeah so um, <laughs> uh, that's so, that's
1: so cool that's yeah. super cool okay, so it's a nonlinear path uh, yeah. so where did that the love of books and maybe writing where did that take you
0: well so so anyway so i was a pretty good i was a pretty good student not because I was smart but because you could be a pretty like in the 1970s in you know like a typical Junior, junior. We didn't have middle school then; it wasn't invented yet. We had junior high. Um, in a typical junior high in high school, if you were just like, if you just gave the authority figure what he or she mostly she wanted neatly and on time, you would do really well. And so I figured that out. That was pretty. That was pretty good. So, so, so I, I did. I did. You know, I, I got good grades. Uh, I, but I had a moment. I'll get. I'll tell you more of this origin story. So I had this moment when I was a freshman in high school. And I was assigned to write something for the school newspaper. And there's something that clicked in my head in a way that had never clicked when I was doing a regular assignment, okay? Okay? And I remember the story. I was assigned to write a story about the girls' softball team. So huge, big time, all right? And so, but when I was doing that, I was like, wait a second, I have to figure out what to write. No one's telling me what to write. What is the theme in, in, um, it's not like, please discuss the main theme in The Old Man and the Sea oh, okay, you already told us that the theme, you already wrote on the board what the theme is, and now my job is to actually write it on a piece of paper and hand it to you, okay? That's not that challenging. But when you get an assignment to do a story about the girls' softball team, you have to figure out what am I going to write about, what questions am I going to ask. But the other thing that happens is that you think, holy moly, other people are going to read this. Yeah. It better be right, and it better be good. Yeah. And then my head clicked in a way that it hadn't clicked before. And I think that you know, those there are all these little moments along, all these little moments along the way. Anyway, to make a long story longer, I went to college, and I majored in linguistics. And then, because I was a middle-class kid from the middle of America, I also went to law school because you needed something to fall back on. I ended up working in politics because that's what I was most interested in. And then I, I enjoyed that to some extent. And then. What I realized, and here we're going to take the story full circle, is that while I was in college, well, really in high school, while while I was in college, while I was in law school, while I was actually working in jobs in politics, I was always quote unquote writing on the side. And it finally dawned on me, I was writing magazine articles and newspaper essays and things like that on the side, and it finally dawned on me that what I was doing on the side is what I should be doing in the center. And then I said, okay, what the hell? I'll just try to become a writer. And that was, by this point in this shaggy story, I'm in my early 30s, all right? So, like, decades have passed now. We've had multiple presidents. Jimmy Carter has come and gone. Ronald Reagan has come and gone. George W. Bush has come and gone. Suddenly, there's built, you know, like, you know, it's like one of those old movies where the pages are flying off the calendars. And it finally took me 30 years to connect the little boy who was going to libraries to the young man who was writing on the side, not realizing that what he wanted to be when he grew up was a writer.
1: Yeah. I love, um, I love signals. And I think signals are so important to recognize. You, you call it self-awareness. Um, but I think all of us have signals throughout our lives. Some of them are subtle. Some of them more overt, you know, like what your calling is. Um, What's
0: a signal that you've had?
1: Um, I, I also got started early writing and telling stories. I actually was, you know, like in elementary school and I was writing really bad poetry and but wanting to tell stories and and also uh, making up jingles to like advertising. And I still to this day, like I can write a really great commercial. Um, and then it's funny because like in three or six months, I'll see that commercial on TV later. I'll go, I should have made it. I mean, there it is. It's like it, it manifests. So I've always kind of been a storyteller, always sort of interested in. Um, capturing attention. That's sort of what, you know, um, attention we've talked about is the asset as we kind of create content that's valuable to other people or inspirational or aspirational or educational. And that's kind of what this series is about. I know that the audience who watches, um, a lot of them have their own business. They're also entrepreneurs probably, or if they're working for someone else, they're probably toiling away uh, in their home office dreaming of becoming a writer or you know, doing their, their passion. And so I think this is somewhat relatable conversation to, to everyone in the room. Um, let, let's bring it back full circle. Okay. Um, gosh, when did we have you out here for To Sell is Human? I feel like eight it was ago. eight Yeah, eight years no, ago.
0: Yeah eight, yeah, eight years ago, I think.
1: Yeah, amazing. Um, and I still remember some really important takeaways from that book to me, which is we're all in sales now, whether you like it or not, you know, it's, and I don't think really even personal branding had taken off like it has now, but, um, that book is still relevant today. Your new book, the power of regret, um, it's sort of a polarizing title. I mean, it's, it's, it's catchy, but it's intriguing and somewhat polarizing. Talk about why you wrote it, who you wrote it for, break it down a little bit. And then I have some like more unpacking style questions. Sure.
0: So, so why I wrote it. Uh, I wrote it largely because I had regrets of my own. Um, I'm at the point in my life, um, like some of you, where I have, to my surprise, to my shock, some mileage behind me. <laughs> and then, But I also realized that I have some mileage ahead of me. And so how do you make sense of the past and use it to guide the future? So that, that was part of it. Uh, I was reckoning with some regrets of my own, uh, spurred in part by the graduation from college of our elder daughter, so she, she was at this graduation, uh, she graduated from college in 2019. And so we're at this college graduation and I'm, I'm having basically an out-of-body experience because my, I mean, you know, as a father of four, the, you can't even believe this kid is old enough to graduate. you kind of like, this kid was just born. It's like, what happened? Like she was born, like so she was born on Tuesday and suddenly Saturday she's graduating from college, like yeah. what the hell's going on here? Yeah. But even more important than that is like, how can I have a kid who? is graduating from college because I'm 26, and and, um, and and I started thinking about my own college experience and started thinking about my regrets, the things that I regretted about being in college. I regretted that I wasn't as kind as I could have been. I regretted that I, I could have worked harder. I regretted that I could have taken, taken more risks. And what's weird is that I started, when I came back, I, I mentioned this to a few people, and I had this interesting reaction, I had a reaction that you always want to get when In any kind of venture, if you have a business idea, if you're starting a nonprofit, is that when I mention something, and and you make a very good point, Brian, that this is like people don't necessarily want to talk about regret, right? Okay, okay, but they do. That's the thing. So when I mentioned it to people, they leaned in, and when I say lean in, I don't mean it metaphorically. I mean it. I mean it literally. I mean like, oh my God, that's your regret. Let me tell you mine. Right. And I'm like, whoa hold on here, folks, this is pretty interesting. This is something that people want to talk about. I went and looked at some of the academic research on it, and I said, okay, this is pretty interesting. I had some ideas on, what I, on, on different ways to approach it, and I actually put aside an entirely different book that I'd already started working on, and basically said, put that put that aside. I had a contract for it and everything, put it aside and said I, I, this is, this is a this is a better book this is this feels more urgent to me right now because this emotion of regret we have completely misunderstood we've gotten it wrong
1: yeah and there's another signal right like you either mm-hmm. you, you see the demand yeah. or you feel it you know in your flow state you know sometimes you you can just feel it in your gut that's I think you call it intuition um, those signals are I, I'll come back to them often because I just think they're so important um, and sometimes, if you're like me, you talk yourself out of knowing what's best for you and, and intuitively knowing the path that you should take. But then sometimes you hear the outside voices and you say, you know, you shouldn't write that book because, you know, what gives you the right or how are you qualified to do that or you've never done that before or that sounds risky or that's just for people like Daniel Pink. You know, why would... Why would you even consider it? So anyway, there's lots of reasons that I have.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, if that's your, if that's your argument, I've certainly demonstrated that unqualified people can write books. <laughs> so that should be that should be perfectly, you know, that that should take away that argument.
1: Well, that's fair. But I, I you know, I, I guess as a as a theme tonight, I just want to, I want to underscore this idea of signals because I think it really is important.
0: I think it's super important, actually, and 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 I think it's better than um, some of the advice that we give to young people. So, for instance, um, if you ask people, like sometimes, some someone, and when I say young, I mean all All right, it's like, oh, what, what should I do? Okay, all right, here we go. Here's how you figure it out, young man or woman. Here you go. What's your passion? All right. And I fucking hate that question. <laughs> and and the reason the the reason I hate that question is because you have to give a really good answer to it. And I'm you know I'm in my fifties. All right. I got you know. I'm a veteran here, and if you ask me that question, what's your passion? I have no idea. I would say baseball, probably. Baseball on some days, yeah. Drinking on other days. I mean, it depends, you know. Stand-up comedy uh, specials on Netflix on third days. I, I don't know, but, but I think it's a terrible question. And, and, and I think the real question, Brian, that you, that you're, you have is like, is the signal. I think the, the key signal is what do you do? And for me, early in my, relatively early in my life, or, though in some ways late in my life, later in my life, I realized like, here I am working, the, here I am, here's a dude with a law degree. Here's a dude with, who's working at fairly high levels of, of politics and government and in very, very demanding jobs. And I'm at my desk at midnight in my t- the tiny little apartment my wife and I had in the Adams Morgan section of Washington, D.C., and I'm writing an article for Fast Company magazine in its early days. And I'm not getting paid. All right? That's a signal. All right? It took me a while to to hear the signal, but that's a signal. I'm not saying, I didn't say, if you had said to me at that point, is writing your passion, I would say, I have no idea. If you say to me at this point, is writing your passion, I would say, I don't know. But what do you do? What do you do? That's the signal. That's what we should be looking for. What do you do when no one's watching? What do you do because it's who you are? What do you do? Because it's a full expression of the your you know your being and your purpose, and yeah. those are the signals that we should be looking at.
1: Yeah, and we were talking off camera too. I'll just add my two cents. I totally agree with you. Um, what do you do? And, and I'm going to answer this rhetorically first, and you can chime in. But like, what do you do when you know you produce that video or that show, or you write that book, and 25 people show up, right? And my answer to that is instead of focusing on what like, Joe Rogan is doing or you know, some of these people with massive audiences, it's really about the minimum viable audience or the minimum viable product, right? Like, so what's, what's the right number for you to do it? And the way I answer that question is actually, the reason I do this show is like, I would do it without y'all. And, and that's okay. I love that you're here, but I would do it without you. And, and so I can't not do it. That's my signal. Like, I can't not tell the story or produce the video or, or talk and learn from someone else. It's just, it's in me, it needs to come out. There needs to be a vehicle, a platform for that. And that's, that's why I do it. And to me, that's my signal. It's like, okay, this is what I should be doing.
0: And if you're always looking for the signal of what the market, so it's, it's, a, it's a mix. So you wanna to listen to what the market is telling you. You yeah. do, you really, you really do. But you don't wanna listen only to that. Right. Because sometimes the market is wrong. And, you know, and also, the, sometimes the market is not ready yet. So, you know, and, and also the thing is, is that, is that, you know, and and in some ways I'm telling myself this, the, that, that, you know, day to day, it's like, if you want to try to get your idea out there, whatever it is, if you have a company, if you have a nonprofit, if you have a piece of art, if you have music, if you have video, whatever it, there's nothing, the, the universe is not configured for you to deliver that to the world and have it be instantly accepted and embraced forever.
1: Well, in fact, you should expect it not to be.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But you should you should you should care enough about it that you will show up to a Barnes and Noble in Henderson, Nevada in 2001 where there were there were chairs arranged for 50 people and there were only 3 people who showed up and one as soon as I started talking got up and said, "Oh, I'm in the wrong place." <laughs> All right? So and, but 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 I'm, but but dead serious. You know what you do in those situations, young men and women here, because I'm going to school you here. You know what you do? You put on a freaking great show for those two people. Yeah. You sit down and you talk to those two people. You answer every single question you have. You bring it for those two people. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's how, and that's how you do it. And you try to be. You try to be. It's not easy. And I get I get frustrated so many times. Uh, you try not to. You try not to be daunted by only by only that. Now, what you don't want to do is like if if something isn't, at a certain point you discover something isn't working. That's another signal, all right? And you don't want to escalate commitment to a failing course of action. But my experience has been, especially in creative professions, and in um, um, even to some extent in entrepreneurial professions, is that that's not the problem. People, I think people bail too early.
1: Yeah, yeah, most of the time. There's uh, this book I read in uh, high school It's that Napoleon Hill book, Think and Grow Rich. Yeah. And the only thing I remember from that book is the story of the gold miner. Do you know the story? No. So apparently, if I'm getting it correct, um, during the gold rush, there's this person who was out mining for gold in California somewhere. And he's digging and he's digging and just just nothing. And, you know, he's working his fingers to the bone. He's worked for years. And he's just like, you know what? This is bananas. It's just a bunch of dust and dirt. I'm out of here. Rocks abandons the mine, the next person comes in, basically picks up where he left, uh, leaves off, and after three more feet of digging, discovers like one of the biggest gold mines in California history. And so, it's kind of what you're saying, is you, know, you never know when you're three feet from gold. Um, the trick is to know, you know when to cut bait, when to keep going, when to push through. I was also gonna say that um, we started this show in 2009, 2010. We were early. No one was doing long form. I mean, a 30-minute video, are you kidding me? Three minutes is all people will watch is what they told me, right? So we were a little bit early. Um, But you're right. I think it is about um, honing your craft, focusing in on those two people, if you only have two people watching. You know, I mean, crickets, when no one's paying attention, that's a signal too, right? But um, it's super sage advice. But I want to know how you feel about this saying, like, Okay. No regrets. Like some people have a tattooed on their bodies, right? Yes, like this This idea of no regrets.
0: That, 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 they should regret that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, they should regret that uh, tattoo um, because it's a foolish philosophy and a terrible blueprint for living a good life.
1: So I'm going to play the other side of the coin Bottom just for fun, which is, but Dan, you know, if I say that I have regrets and that means I made mistakes and um, I'm not as talented as I think I am. And so, you know, what do you say to the person who doesn't want to go down that path? Because it's maybe the truth hurts a little bit.
0: I would say say a number of different things. First of all, I would say, a you're not that special um, because everybody has regrets. Everybody has regrets. And one of the problems is that when we feel negative emotions, particularly like regret, we sometimes feel like we're the only one because we see this kind of performative thing going on out there in the world, and we think, oh my god, I must be the only one. And that is complete nonsense. Everybody has regrets. There's there's 50 years of research telling us this. The only people who don't have regrets, truly, are five-year-olds, because their brains haven't developed um, enough, because regret is actually this incredibly, requires an incredible kind of cognitive and emotional dexterity. Um, People with certain kinds of brain damage and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. And, and, and so you have to ask yourself, this thing, this, this emotion of regret, which feels bad, if everybody has it and it feels bad, that's kind of weird, right? Because we're supposed to be pleasure-seeking creatures, not pain-seeking creatures. So everybody experiences regret, and yet it's unpleasant. So why do we have it? Here's the re- reason. It's useful if we deal with it right. Regret not only makes us human, it makes us better if we deal with it right. We shouldn't ignore it, we shouldn't wallow in it, but what we should do is, is confront it. So, so to me, in some ways, that no regrets tattoo is saying, no learning, no interest in improving. You know, and, and, that's, and that's foolish. No
1: transparency,
0: yeah.
1: no vulnerability,
0: yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, so, and so it's a really hideous and, it's a really hideous and dangerous philosophy. And, and, and part of it, Brian, I think is that we haven't um, it, I'm interested in your point about signals, okay so let's come back to that for a second We, we haven't been taught to deal properly with negative emotions right we've been told this bill of goods that a good life is uni- has, a, has a singular valence it's positive all the time and that the way to succeed is to be positive all the time to look forward and not look backward and that is incorrect that goes against what that, that goes against what we know from 50 years of social science, it goes, it goes against what we talk about as w- what we know from, from human nature. Yeah. And what we haven't figured out is that regret, our most prominent negative emotion, is a signal. It's another signal. It's a knock at the door. So you can say, uh-oh, I'm feeling bad. I feel a regret because I made this bad decision because I took this course of action, because I failed to, because I, I didn't start a business, because I started a business and it flopped, because I didn't ask somebody out on a date, because I had a bad first marriage. You can say, oh, that's a, it's a signal. Hello, all right? And so it's a knock at the door. So you, have two, you can knock at the door and say, uh, oh, I don't hear anything, blah, 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 no regrets. Um, or you can be so wigged out by it that you dive underneath the dining room table and don't, you know, and so we don't want to ignore our regrets and we don't want to wallow in our regrets. We want to use them, to your phrase, as signals. They're signals. They're, they're telling us something. And when we do that, the, the evidence is overwhelming that, that processing our regrets properly, has, it sharpens our decision making. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience. The business of benefits are huge. It can make us better negotiators. It can make us better problem solvers. It can make us better strategists. It can bring better meaning to our life. As long as we deal, this, this no regrets philosophy. I mean, I'm sorry to rant here. I'm actually not that sorry. Just recognize that it's annoying. The, um, <laughs> the, um, the this no regrets philosophy is. It's, you make a point about vulnerability. It's, it's similar. This no regrets philosophy. Is, presented as an act of courage, and it's not. Courage is looking at your regrets dead in the eye and doing something about them. In the same way that when you mentioned vulnerability, being, showing your vulnerabilities is a suppressing your vulnerabilities and never showing any vulnerability is fake courage. Just real courage is actually showing your vulnerability. And the same. it's the same thing here.
1: Well, and, and I think that people, you know, your friends, your inner circle, your clients, I think eventually they start to pick up on this. If you're fronting, like there's no one that walks this perfectly. Straight line from A to Z and, and you know cashes in their billion dollar check right? It's like, come on, we all go home and you know we've got this fire to put out and that problem to solve and then we got to pay the mortgage. You know we've we're all basically in the same boat. Um, okay, I like it. So you talk about these kind of four core mm-hmm. regrets. So why don't you break that down and like unpack
0: that? Sure, sure, sure. So so let me tell you how I let me tell you how I let me tell you how I got there. So I was really curious about what people regretted. And so I I did some research. I did a big uh, public opinion survey to try to figure out what people regretted, and uh, among other things. I found out that regret was very common. If you ask people, if you ask Americans this question about regret without using the R word, you get very different answers from the performative thing that you're talking about. So I I asked people, we asked a sample of 4,489 Americans. How often do you look back on your life and wish you had done something differently? So it's, it's a question about regret, we just don't say regret. Mm-hmm. How, what percent said never? One okay. percent, okay? That's the people, that's like, you know, people with either people with those tattoos or five-year-olds were answering the survey or something, I don't know, and, and so we had uh, 15 or so percent said rarely. And basically 83, 84% of people said, oh yeah, yeah I do that sometimes. Because they're humans, because they're normal, they're, they're normal human beings. I also wanted to know in this quantitative survey what people regretted. And I found out that they regret a lot of stuff. I had people write down their regret and then put it in a category. Is this a family regret? Is this a health regret? Is this a romance regret? Is this a, a, a career regret? And they were all over the place. Now I also did something else. And forgive the long-winded, contextual, discursive backstory to a very simple question. I also, connect, I also collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And that was a game changer. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. I thought, I, what I wanted to do is, I wanted some texture as a writer. I wanted some stories and texture. And so I said, OK, I'm going to put up this thing called the World Regret Survey. I'm going to invite people to submit. And with basically no publicity, we almost instantly had 15,000 regrets. Um, and it's like a little confessional. <laughs> like people are very much, yeah. very much. Um, and what I found there is that when I started reading through these these regrets, is that over and over and over again around the world, people had the same four core regrets. But it didn't. The, the, the domains of life were not what what mattered. What mattered was was going on. Underneath the surface, this hidden architecture of motivation that people had. And so so one big regret that people have is what I call a foundation regret. A foundation regret is if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret not taking care of their bodies, not eating right, not exercising, people who regret smoking, people who regret So that's health. But it's also people who regret not working hard enough in school. People who regret not saving money. Those kinds of things. So things that small decisions that compromise the the um, um, stability of your life. Second category are, this is, so I think it's interesting. It shows, so so I have regrets from people who, uh, how many of you went to, anybody, how many of you went to college out there in the audience? Okay. And so how many of you, did any of you study abroad when you were in college? A handful of you. Okay. So I have huge numbers of regrets. I know you were, you went to Japan, right? Yeah. So, so huge number, but huge numbers of regrets of people who didn't do that so huge numbers of regrets from americans who went to college and didn't study abroad i was shocked by how many people listed that as a regret and we got a lot of nodding out here too and here we go orange county this is your and and the millions of people watching at home this is your free business idea of the day a travel agency that caters to people who regret not studying abroad as as young people and now have money in their pocket to do something like that as adults and i'm totally not kidding it's a frickin' great idea. I have the name for it, ready? What? Second time around. Oh, well done. Well done. I told you I have a gift. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, okay, so, so that's an education regret. I also have, as we approach, we're, uh, for, for those of you watching on video, Brian and I are talking um, a week before Valentine's Day. So, this is a, so I also have people, hundreds of people, who have a regret about not asking somebody out on a date. I like this person, I like him or her, I was really into him or her. I wanted to ask him or her on a date. I chickened out, and I've regretted it ever since. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That's a romance regret. Then I have people who said, oh, God, I've stayed in this crappy job, and I really wanted to start a business, but I never did. All right, that's a, that's a career regret. But those three regrets, the study abroad, the date, and the business, they're the same. It's the same regret. Yeah. It's a regret that says, if only I'd taken the chance. You're at a juncture in your life. You can play it safe. You can take a chance. You don't take the chance, most people regret it. That's a boldness regret.
1: Okay. Uh, the wheels are turning. Um, lots got, more questions.
0: We got two more. You want to hear the other two? Yes, please. Moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. Okay. Pretty self-explanatory, but the amount, the the, 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 two, biggest cat- the two biggest sort of incidents here in the, in the moral regret, it's a small category, but a very interesting one. Very, very interesting one. The two biggest Entries in that category are people who regret bullying kids in school it's amazing to me how prevalent that is and then marital infidelity and then there also are other kinds of things it's It's interesting because because we don't have a shared notion of what it is to be moral so I, I had this interesting experience where there there are several people more than I expected whose moral regret is that i didn't serve in the americans i didn't serve in the military i didn't serve in the military and and I, I had a conversation with somebody, it's like, well, why is, that's not a, what? That, and I'm like, well, come on. It's like, you, you, just, you don't have the same sense of morality when it comes to duty. You have the same sense of morality when it comes to not harming people, not cheating people, but some people have a morality that actually says that I have duties to others. And so, you know, so, so it's, compli- it's, it's a really interesting category. And finally, connection regrets, which are re- regrets where you have a relationship, or you should have had a relationship, and it comes apart.
1: Yeah, you worked your, you know, your 9 to 5, 90 hours a week. You never saw your kids grow up. And then she's graduating, and you think, where's all the time gone?
0: That's, that's part of it. You also, I mean, that, that's, a big, that's a big part of it. You have relationships that drift apart. And what happens is that people want to reach out, but they don't because they think it's going to be awkward, and they think the other side's not going to care. And so the relationship drifts further apart. So I've got people who, horrible, terrible story of a woman who had this childhood friend who had cancer and she heard she had cancer, and she wanted to call her, and she wanted to reach out and talk to her, but it was awkward. She says, oh, she's going to think I'm only calling her because she has cancer. She put it off, and put it off, and put it off, and then she finally called her, and the friend had died that morning. Uh. Yeah. That's a terrible... Right, exactly. So you felt... Okay, so all of you felt that. You went, ugh, right? That's a pain. So what do you do with that? And the good news is that this woman, Amy, who's actually... um, She's she's from around here. She's from Pasadena. She... um, um, Used that and said, "Okay, I learned my lesson." She had another friend, sadly, who was seriously ill, and she said, "This time, I'm not going to blow it." This time, and so she had another friend with a, another terrible illness. She called that friend, she texted that friend, she visited that friend. That friend also passed away, but she, but but when that friend passed away, Amy liter- legitimately had no regrets because she she felt that ugh, and she said, "You know what? That's a signal." That ugh is a signal. It's tell- the world is trying to teach me something. Am I going to be open to learning it and then deploying it to go forward?
1: Oh, so good. So good.
0: Um... And, so these, and these four regrets are really interesting. And, and it took me to a place that I didn't expect because here's the thing. If you know what people regret the most, you know what they value the most. Like if, if you know what, what's bugging people 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, you know what they value the most. So in this weird way, this, these, this, these, these 16,000 people are a chorus telling me what they value the most. And what do they value? They value stability. They value, uh, I don't know if they value boldness, but what they value is, 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 is growth and learning and doing something. Right. They value being good. We, we value morality and we value love.
1: I'm thinking of that... Uh... Thoreau quote, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about, sort of the inaction of really doing what you want to do. It's, I mean, that's the greatest pain ever, right? Like the, that feeling of regret, like I
0: woulda, coulda, shoulda, you know, and didn't. But can I pick up on your inaction word? Yeah. Because that's hugely important. In the architecture of regret, there are two big kinds, two big categories of regret. Regrets of action. I did this. Regrets of inaction, I didn't do that. All right? Now, what's to Thoreau and Elliot, as people age, early in people's lives, they have about equal numbers of action regrets and inaction regrets. As people age, inaction regrets take over. What people stick would stick with people over time in their th- in their in their starting in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s are inaction regrets. Yep. If, I didn't reach out to that friend, and now he's gone. I didn't take that trip that I always wanted to do. I didn't start that business. I didn't. You know, um, I'm surprised by the number of people still pining after romantic partners from decades ago. I mean, it's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, maybe there's a maybe there's a we we were we were in a building we were in a building today in uh, in West Hollywood that was I just saw that had all the the. It was, a, it was a WeWork at a WeWork where they had also some of the other companies there, and one of them was Grindr. It was almost like, like a grinder for lost loves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that nostalgia That's not
0: going over as well, I can tell. That's a signal I'm getting. <laughs> I'm getting a signal that that's not going over that well.
1: Well, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm thinking about this story that I shared with you. Um, and Maybe I'll share it with a few people here because maybe it has some value um, and kind of tell that story of my yeah. dad. Uh, and it, it's, it has a happy ending, even though it's, it's kind of a sad story. But, um, so gosh, you know, it was about four years ago when we were in a, a similar room sitting down with Seth Godin and I shared for the first time really publicly my story that I'm adopted and then I found my birth parents and then it was like both the most amazing thing and both terrible at the same time. And, and I won't re tell that story, but where the story picks up that you haven't heard of is, you know my dad and I uh, really started building our relationship. And um, this was just uh, a handful of years ago. And I figured out, I uh, found out that I have half sisters. I mean, call them sisters and we have this great relationship and we're, we're getting so much closer. And, you know, a couple of years ago she got married and she asked me to officiate her wedding. And it's just, it been this beautiful thing where I found this family that I didn't know that I had and we're becoming, you know, close and and so these are just you know like after not knowing them for 30 plus years um just such a cherished moment um that we got to spend time together flash forward you know my dad has been my dad was living with really bad back pain forever chronic back pain it was just almost unbearable he could he was all hunched over couldn't stand up and so he was 69 years old and elected to have back surgery and he and i had this real you know, heart-to-heart conversation. Like I said, at that point, I was calling him Dad, which was terrific. And I said, uh, "You know, you're 69. You're not in the best health. This is sort of rolling the dice here. Are you prepared for the worst to happen?" He said, "What I'm, what how I'm living right now is not a quality of life. So yes." And I said, "You know, I think if I were in your shoes, I would do the same thing. I think you should go for it." So he has this a pretty invasive back surgery, and he comes out flying colors. I flew to San Francisco. to to meet him and see him and I'm standing by his bedside and he's giving me two thumbs up and I kiss him and say okay I feel good you're in good hands Uh, surgery was a big success I fly back to LA and I see a picture of him standing up for the first time straight and again you know thumbs up he's walking and physical therapy and then maybe a a couple days later my sister calls and says dad's not doing great he got an infection it was totally out of the blue and within hours, he was gone. And so I think about this idea of regret, um, that I i feel so grateful. I mean, it's uh, its painful to think that the irony you know, of us being so separated for so many years, and then being reunited, and then him being taken away from me again so quickly. And I'll tell you that he did have that regret of inaction. Mm. and. Almost every time we would see each other, he would apologize. Like, I'm so sorry I didn't reach out sooner. I'm so sorry we didn't. I didn't get to see you grow up. You know, didn't get to coach your little league and, and see you graduate from college and all, all these things. And I said, Dad, it, you know, that is the past. Like, let's focus on right now building our relationship. And that's what we did. Like, he taught me how to make a proper omelet, and uh, he was in the wine business, so he taught me about you know all all of the intricacies of food and wine pairings and. He's this world traveler. He told me all these great stories. And um, I regret that he can't show me around Italy because he you know, he knew Italy like the back of his hand and, and tons of other places around the globe. And when people hear that my, my dad passed, uh, the way he did, they, they say, I'm so sorry for your last so, and, and I am sorry. It's, it's, it's a very complicated emotion. But at the same time, I feel so happy that... Uh, we spent so much quality time together. And it wasn't about the quantity, you know. And I know that he would probably say the same thing. That, you know, we made amends. We had this fallen son relationship. And so that, you know, that taking the action, it made all the difference. Good stuff.
0: Yeah. But here's the thing. Imagine, imagine the reverse scenario where neither one of you reached out. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. Like, with like these connection regrets, the lesson is, is, is plain as the nose on my face, which is always reach out. If you're at a juncture, this, for me, the lesson of the connection regrets is if you're at a juncture where you're saying, should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at the juncture has answered the question. Reach out. I do that
1: on a micro level with my son, who's a teenager. He's 13, 14. He just turned 14. And I, like, I'll walk past his room and I'll get this gut feeling like I should just tell him I love him or just come up and give him a hug. And sometimes I'm like, I fight the feeling like, ah, I'm too busy or he's going to think that's weird And then I push back and go, no, no, I need to take this opportunity and just do it. Um, And so for me, (laughs) sometimes it really happens on a micro level hundreds of times a day because I don't want to have, you know, that regret that, you know, I didn't put in the time or I think about that a lot. So what do we do with the regret? Where do we put it? There's a place to put it, right? Talk about that.
0: Well, I mean, what we Okay, so re, let's say we've already determined that regrets are signals. So, what do we do with the signal? The signal comes in beep 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 beep. What do you do with it? All right. So, one thing is that is that again, we're we're we It's interesting. I want to pick up on one thing you said about a confessional because religions sometimes do a decent job of dealing with negative emotions. At least they have traditions and things to help us deal with negative emotions. So, take a, take a negative emotion like grief. All right. Um, imagine imagine if you imagine if you said. You had a tattoo that said, no grief, all right? Imagine a world without grief. It's a world without love, right? I mean, it's, it's, always, it's almost unimaginable, right? And so, but, but grief is terrible. Grief is a horrible thing. You don't understand that from your own story, right? So grief is a horrible thing. So we have religious traditions that help us process grief. And to some extent, we have religious traditions that help us deal with certain kinds of regrets. Con- Catholicism, refect- uh, confessional, repentance. Uh, in Judaism, um, a day of atonement. But in secular society, we don't know what like. What do we do with these negative emotions. And so the first step is something called self-compassion, which is the work of, pioneered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. Self-compassion is pretty straightforward and simple. Here's what it is.
1: I was going to be kind of sassy and say, I know what you do. You just bottle them up and, and put them in a compartment someplace. Never talk about them again, right? That's what I do. Precisely. Push it down. Suppress.
0: Right, right. It's like that, um, it's like that, uh, that song from the Book of Mormon. You know, um, not the the religious text, the stage play. The um, uh, uh, turn it off (laughs) like lights. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I
0: Ah. I find myself
1: numbing or um, trying to escape all the time. Bad idea. With, you know, working too much or, you know.
0: Don't ignore your regrets. Don't wallow in them. Use them as signals. When the signal comes in, number one. Uh, Practice self-compassion, which it sounds a little gooey, but there's some really good science behind it. Basically what it is is this, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. The way we talk to ourselves is often brutal. We talk to ourselves in ways that is much more lacerating and cruel than we'd ever talk to anybody else. Don't do that. Talk, treat yourself with, it's like that old joke, right? The guy goes to a doctor's office and says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, don't do that. Um, Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. The other thing is that recognize that, that your regrets are part of the human condition. You're, you're not that special. We, we tend to think that somehow like we're enduring something that has never been endured by any other human being on the planet, when in fact, if I have regrets about kindness, lots of people have regrets about kindness.
1: Well, maybe that's an yeah. indication that we're, we're comparing ourselves too much because we look at you know, Daniel Pink out there, how successful, best-selling author, and you think, <sighs> you know, that's not me, right? And so I think maybe it's a comparison thing when we start to beat up on ourselves because we assume, like you said, yeah. that we are special and that we ought to be like that person.
0: No, but we also, we also feel, like, we also feel like, like somehow our suffering, such as it is, is somehow unique. Right. And it's not. Like it's part of the human condition. Everybody has these kinds of regrets. And the other thing is, is that we have to do, so, so treat yourself with kindness, recognize it. Like everybody has these kinds of regrets, and the other thing is like is actually look at these decisions that you've made, not as kind of final judgment on your worth as a human being, but as a moment in your life. And so when you do that, self-compassion allows you to m- move to the next steps, and, and one of them is, and you you know anticipated it. so So we have self-compassion. The second thing is is disclosure, disclosure. I mean. There's a reason that Catholicism has a confessional, because what what does disclosure do? Disclosure is an unburdening, so you feel better about that. But there's also something, but but even more than that, there's something cognitive going on here. Something really important in our brains. Negative emotions are abstract; they're blobby, they're amorphous, like you know, they kind of go, go around like that, and and that's why they're kind of they feel kind of menacing. But if you take those negative emotions and convert them into words by talking about them by writing about them three times you know 15 minutes a day for 3 days you're taking this rah, 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 menacing thing and converting it into concrete words which are less menacing yeah you get it off your chest yeah it's it's it's, it's also you but it's also sense making you're taking something from abstract and making it concrete and you can begin the sense making process the other thing which we also screw up is that we think when we were talking about this earlier we think when we disclose our mistakes and our vulnerabilities People will think less of us. We really do. We fear that. And we're wrong.
1: Okay. I'm pushing back on this because when I used to have a real job Mm -hmm. and before, you know, this life, having my own business as a production company, maybe some of you don't know, I worked at a big Hollywood studio in, you know, called Universal Pictures. And I'm telling you, if people found out that you made a mistake, you know, your neck was on the chopping block and I mean, you got punished. Like, either you got demoted or you got, you know, shunned somehow, uh, or some people got let go because, you know, these mistakes were big enough. Fire, fire, fireable offense, but... Is that what you're talking about?
0: No, I'm, 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 that, that, sounds like, that sounds like a terrible place to work. It that, Yeah, that. and, and, it and a place that isn't going to produce, it isn't, and it's not going to produce anything, anything of, of high quality. It, it, right. goes, it goes against one of the fundamental precepts of everything we know about organizational psychology, which is that the, 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 the places where people do their best work, the organizations that do their best work, are places that have psychological safety. Where you actually don't fear that that psychological safety is the cornerstone of most successful organizations. Yeah,
1: it was cutthroat there. I mean, yeah, everyone yeah. you know, crabs in a bucket, how they say you know the tra- crab-, crab is trying to crawl out of the bucket. You know this analogy, you know, and the yeah, other crab I mean, is trying to pull it back down.
0: It's terrible. So 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 um um, but we so so you want to you want to disclose, and then finally you want to you want to extract a lesson from it. That's 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 key. And the way that we extract lessons from these things is by having some distance and some remove. We're, we're better at solving other people's problems than we are at our own. So what you wanna yeah. do is you wanna actually pretend, at some level, you, you're, you're, you're not, not pretend you're somebody else, but hap, do th- techniques that give you distance. So for an, uh, example, so Brian, you could say, instead of saying, oh, what should I do with this regret? You should say, what should Brian do with this regret? Sounds crazy, but that kind of linguistic self-distancing is can be can be super valuable. You can do things like this, you can actually use our incredible powers of time travel, go into the future and say, okay, what should, what does future Brian five years from now want current Brian to do? And you, you know that, but the best thing, I'll give you the single best decision making tool of any kind, forget about regret, is this. You're trying to make a decision. You're a little bit torn. Ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? And when you do that, everybody always knows.
1: Yeah. Or your kid, right? You're not gonna come down so hard on your kid. Yeah. You're gonna say, all right. You ran this race, you came in third, that's awesome. You know, you beat your best time, you know, so far. You, you came in third, that's great. You know, maybe you evaluated, you know, whatever, but you don't come down hard on them.
0: No, and so, so, what you, so, so here's the thing. So, so, so think of it this way, to, 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 to summarize. Inward, outward, forward. Inward, treat yourself with self-compassion. Outward, disclose it to make sense of it, um, and to build affinity. Uh, forward. Uh, take a step back and ask what you, you tell your best friend to do and that's how we do it. And that, and that way that you can have, that, that's, that, that's why you have this woman, Amy from Pasadena who had this terrible regret and, and, and what she did is uh, she said, okay, I'm probably not the only one who did this. She talked about it and she said, I learned a lesson from it. The lesson is always reach out and, then, and suddenly she's, she's leading a better life.
1: Yeah. I like this idea sometimes you win, sometimes you learn and I also like yeah. this idea of of journaling about your let 's call them losses, you know you have wins and you have losses over here, or lessons if you want to call them L lessons, um, and that you don 't have to show to your boss um, or even show it to your wife <laughs> necessarily you can keep that kind of private journal of wins and losses i 'm joking about my wife um, she 's very supportive I think. hi, honey uh, but no, you can keep that confidential because I think there is a time and a place for disclosure. It's a, yeah. it's, a
0: good, it's, a, it's a good point because some people are skittish about disclosure. And, and the thing about disclosure, so, so you're totally right. What the research tells us, look at the work of James Pennebaker, also at the University of Texas, that, that writing about, it's, it's fascinating that you, can, you don't have to, that, that part of the disclosure is the converting of them into language to begin sense-making. And so writing about your regret privately for 15 minutes a day for three consecutive days very, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a proven technique. I'll give you another one. Um, this is the idea of Tina Selig at Stanford University. She calls it a failure resume. And so what you do is like, you know, everybody has these, everybody has, most people have res, most professional people have resumes. And there's a list of all of your accomplishments and accolades and how great you are and all that. Um, she suggests doing the, the flip side of that, which is make a compilation of all of your screw ups, your flubs, your failures, your setbacks. Um, and I've done this, and, and I'm not sharing it. And you, you list it, you list all those things, and then you say, okay, what lesson did I learn from it? And what am I gonna do about it? And that's a great, that's a great technique. Yeah.
1: Did not invest in Apple in 2001. You know, something like that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there were, there were a few, uh, not as many like that in the World Regret Survey, but there were a few. Like if you go into my database and search like Bitcoin, you get a few people yeah. it's like, oh, I should have bought Bitcoin when it was blah, 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 blah.
1: You know what I'll tell you too from my own experience is sometimes those regrets or what I have in the, the learn column, they turn into win column because, so I cut the cord from my perfectly good job in November heading into December of 2007. So I don't know where you were in 2000, late 2007, heading into 2008, but I had no idea that I was sailing into the perfect storm. Right. So I cut the cord and I said, I declared I'm starting my own business. I'm so excited. I'm, you know, I've got some money saved. I no longer need this, you know, ongoing salary and health, health benefits. And 2008 is going to be the best year yeah. ever. <laughs> and then, you know, I got punched in the mouth with the re- recession and I thought, I regret this. <laughs> I regret quitting. Shortly after, you know, months and a couple of years down the road, I saw all my friends, most of my friends, lose their job um, out of their control. I, you know, I jumped out of the airplane uh, willingly, and saw everyone else sort of, you know, get toasted afterwards. But um, later on, I would say when I kind of recovered in 2012. Um, I was really happy that I did that because I had a little bit of a head start and I thought, well, gosh, I know at least I went willingly and I had a little bit of time to sort of get my ducks in a row. No one else had that, you know, that I know of. And the department that was like 200 people was whittled down to like 11. Um, so anyway, so, you know, I, I did regret that at one time and then I came back and, and I, I thought, Oh, well it kind of turned out. Okay. So things can shift around. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean that's part of. I mean that's a, that's a it's an interesting point because if you do your failure resume as I did and you look for lessons, in some cases, there isn't a lesson. It's like some things just don't work out. Yeah, sometimes just it's just bad luck. Like it's not. Yeah, and so and actually sorting in that, but that sorting process is super important. What do we have control over? What do we not have control over? And that, that ends up being a big part of how we maintain that. But what I like about regret is that if we deal with it systematically, you can begin to sort that out. For me, in my failure resume, there were a lot of things that I considered failures or screw-ups. And it was like, what's the lesson? I don't know the lesson. It's just like, some stuff doesn't work. Right. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, bad, you know, whatever. And it, but there were other things were, so I, where I had made like, some colossal errors. And that I, can, that I can learn from, but that teasing out process is something else that regret can do, which is why regret is this, you know, I keep coming back to what we were talking about earlier. What, you know, there's studies showing that, if you, interesting study from the early 1980s showing where they recorded the everyday conversations of large numbers of Americans. And then they looked at the transcripts of these conversations and they coded, C-O-D-E-D, them for the emotions that were expressed. The most common negative emotion was regret. The second most common emotion people expressed overall was regret. The only emotion they expressed more than regret was love. All right? And so, so, the, so, so you have this thing, this, this very powerful emotion that is part of the human experience. And if we use it, back to Brian, as a signal, it is a powerful signal. It is one of the most powerful signals. It is a signal that our brain has. And I just want to emphasize this. There's a lovely line that two Dutch scholars use. They say, our brain... Our cognitive machinery is pre-programmed for regret. It's like, it's in here, it's in here for a reason. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing, it's like if you, if you think, about, think, about, think about fear, people say, oh, I have no fear, I have no fear. Think about, think about if, you didn't, if you weren't able to experience fear. Yeah.
1: Very handy sometimes, right? When you're uh, about to put your hand
0: into the lion's cage or something, you know, you ought to be afraid. Yeah, yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, you wanna have some fear. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, the building's on fire. No fear. All right. Uh, I'm out of here. I have fear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like the other idea of uh, the regret circle. So it's like having a, you know, I don't know. To me, it's like a commiseration party. But like, this is like a peer group, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, what you can do is you can gather like five people, you know, four or five people and just like go around and everybody talks about one regret and the rest of them um, help them make sense of it. Um, And it's you know and, and the thing is it's like people are far less harsh on you than you are on yourself and the other thing is that they're they're better at solving your problems than you are at solving your problems and then you can reciprocate that by hearing their regret and offering them some guidance too and the thing is i'm telling you all right like there's a reason that 16,000 people decided to share their regret with a complete stranger they want to talk about it. I even had this thing, this is way into how the sausage is made, but in the database, so when, when people filled out this world regret survey, they could list their regret and all I, asked, I it was totally anonymous. I asked for their age and their location and their gender identity, and then I said at another field saying if you're interested in being contacted for a follow-up interview, feel free to leave your email address. Right? Thinking that, you know, I would get a yield of about like 5 or 6%. Thirty-two percent left their email. It's like, yeah, hi, hi, stranger Dan. Here's my regret. Yes, please email me so we can talk about it some more. <laughs> but, but, but I don't mean those. Like, 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 I'm, like, like, again, signals. How many more signals do we need that people want to like are willing to talk about their regrets? And, 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 and the thing is, it's like it's there's a there's a kind of a positive contagion too. That if I reveal a regret or ask somebody about their regret, if I reveal a regret. They're going to be inclined to reveal their regret because what I've done is I've normalized it, I've destigmatized it, um, and and you and then again, what you keep doing is you begin the sense-making process. Regret is a powerful, powerful teacher.
1: I like this, and you know, I, I would maybe uh, summarize it by like normalizing. It's okay not to be okay, right? It's okay to have these
0: regrets. We, it, it's uh, I'll see you and raise you. It's essential that we have these regrets. It's essential that we have these regrets because that's how we learn, that regrets clarify us. Now, we don't want to get hobbled by them. We want to have plenty of positive emotions. We don't want to wall in those regrets, but a fully realized life is a life with regrets that you use to become even better in your life. And, and especially if we think about these four core regrets. Here's the thing. I mean, I can say with some degree of certainty what everybody in this room will regret 10 years from now. All right. Ten years from now, you are not going to regret. Oh, crap. I bought a blue car rather than a gray car. You in 10 years is not going to care about that. What you in 10 years will care about. What might regret is like, oh, my God, I had this friend and I drifted apart and I didn't reach out. And now she's gone. Or it's like it's even harder to reach out now. What you're going to regret is like, you know what? I wanted to step up back in 2022 and I chickened out. 2032, you, it's going to regret that if you're tempted to take the low road or do something wrong in most cases 2032 you is going to regret that and so we know, we know that 2032 you is not going to is not going to regret oh my god i had the um i had the um the 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 nut selection rather than the salami on on monday night they're, they're, they're just they're they're like they're, they're, we we know what future you here's the thing make a phone call to future you because future you knows what you care about and, and Future You is, is, gonna, is not going to care about most things, but Future You is going to care about some, a few extraordinarily important things, and that's what you should focus on. All right, you've been
1: listening to the amazing Daniel Pink. We'll be right back with a word from our sponsor. I want to just uh, give a special thanks again to our sponsor, WeWork. We're here at WeWork Boardwalk, which happens to be in Southern California, Irvine to be specific, and... Um, I love it here. I have an office here. Um, what I love about WeWork is it's expandable, it's customizable, it's modular. So as my company grows, I started with a company of one person and have grown into several more bodies. And whether I'm you know uh, sizing up or sizing down or I need to change locations, um, I love WeWork because of its flexibility. Um, I also love the community and the environment. So everyone who works in this building and other WeWorks around the world, um, they seem to be very collaborative and uh, pretty much like me. They own their own business or they're entrepreneurs. And it's one of the things I love most about it. The other thing is, if I want to you know, travel to New York or London or wherever else there's a WeWork, I can you know, jump in an office, get a conference room, take a meeting, you know, work for the day, and it's super flexible that way. So I uh, highly recommend it. I'll leave a link in the description so you guys can uh, either get your own tour or schedule uh, with a WeWork Person in your neighborhood, it's it's phenomenal, and they have you know even little hot desks where you can work at one of these desks, or you can get your own little private office. Um, Highly recommended. So thanks very much. WeWork. All right, as we sort of round third and bring it home, using a baseball metaphor. Give us some parting advice, Dan. So now we sort of know like what's happening. We know a little bit about what to do, but like maybe like summarize, give us some homework. Like I want to know, I've got this regret, you know, it's right here. I, I know it, I don't want to share it because it's kind of private, um, but what, what should now,
0: what's your best advice? I'll, you, I'll give you a homework assignment if you have a, if you, if you have a big regret, truly write about it for 15 minutes a day for three days no more than 15 minutes and no more than three days don't wallow in it don't don't bask in it and then once you do that ask yourself if my if i was reading this from my best friend what lesson would i tell her it teaches her and what would i tell her to do next and i'm telling you that simple thing and 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 if if three days of 15 minutes is too much in some cases one day of 15 minutes is, is enough um, and, and, and and but again i i I, I want to actually sort of nudge people a little bit to talk about their regrets a little bit more openly because you 're going to feel better, people are going to be receptive to it, and it leads to a very very rich conversation and and one of the things one of the things right now, especially coming out of this pandemic, is that we 've been sort of starved for contact and we 've been removed from people and let's be, when we're sort of doing this reboot in our connections with with other people, let's do a reboot that begins with honest, authentic conversations, not the kind of performative bullshit that we sometimes engage in. Yeah.
1: So find a friend, your brother or sister, your child, you know, someone that you can trust and start sharing. Amen. I love it. We're gonna take a couple questions from the audience now. Uh, And so, Right back here in the gray suit. Daniel is his name. Yes, Daniel.
0: Okay, so Daniel, Daniel wants to know um, uh, what's your take on, okay, so he was talking about passion, it's just another emotion. What's your take on purpose, and can your regrets lead you to purpose? Purpose, okay. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting question, Daniel, because uh, I, I've written seven books, and through no fault of my own, every single one of them seems to always come back to purpose and meaning. I'm not tr- seeking that, but it's just when you follow the facts, when you follow the evidence, when you talk to people and hear their stories, it always seems to lead back to that. So I think, and, and then there's also some incredible research showing uh, in, in, uh, in organizational behavior, organizational psychology showing that uh, purpose is the most cost effective performance enhancer we have in organizations, bar none, right? So can your regrets lead you to purpose? Absolutely, they can lead you to purpose because, what, because here's the thing that regrets do. They instruct, but they also clarify. They tell us what's really important, and and if you listen to your regrets, use them as signals. They can a- they can actually clarify your 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 your, your purpose. And um, and I, I do think that we are are in some ways. Um, I'll give you I'll give you one technique. I'll give you I'll give you a tactical thing that I do. Um, um, is each I try to have more conversations. A couple times a week, I try, to have, I try to turn a how conversation into a why conversation. So if I'm explaining to some, if I'm working with someone, okay, here's how you do that. Here, or even myself, here's how you write that paragraph. Twice a week, I try to turn that into a how conversation. Okay, here's why we're making that phone call, right, rather than how. Here's why I'm writing that chapter. And, 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 and just surfacing that purpose is, is again... It's 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 access that we need to, to survive and thrive. We need some we need some context. We need some direction. Uh, so I'm all for purpose, and regret cl- helps clarify our purpose. If
1: you could travel back in
0: time, yeah. What would you tell your 16 year old self as a piece of wisdom? Right now? What would, so Tony wants to know? What would I tell my sixteen year my sixteen year old self uh, as a piece of wisdom? Um, it's a great question. And, Apple stuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Apple stock. And uh, the um, there's this thing coming out. There's this thing coming out in like 30 years. It's called Bitcoin. Just when you hear about it, just go. Um, The um, um, I would tell my it's it's an interesting question because I think my my 16 year old self wouldn't have listened to me, um, which is a problem. Um, I I think I would tell my 16 year old self. uh, don't worry about what other people think of you because they're not thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. And, 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 and if I had learned that, if I had, re- I, I think I was too dumb to receive that lesson, but if I had received that lesson, I would have saved myself a lot of heartache. All right, so, so Steve wanted to know um, when, when people um, sort of express their regret, was that, did that give them the kind of the motivation and the, and the, and the catalyst to make some change or was simply the expression of it enough? And it, and, and it depends. But I, I think that inevitably it is, I, I want to come back to the point about, about clarity. Because one reason we don't act, okay, th- think about how do we act. We, we, we act when we're moving forward in time and in space, right? We want to know, know how to act. But one reason we don't act is that we don't know, we, we, we don't see the terrain. We don't, it's fuzzy, it's, it's murky, it's cloudy, it's muddy. And so when you do things that give you clarity, oh, Oh, I see. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you, an, exa- I'll give you an example uh, from, from my own. So I have regrets about kindness. Um, and and it's, a, it's a weird kind of regret about kindness. Uh, not that weird, but it's... it's uh, I was never a bully. But throughout my life, especially when I was a 16-year-old Dan, um, 26-year-old Dan, uh, would see people who were not being treated well, who were being excluded, who were being left out. I freaking knew. I saw it happening and I didn't do anything, all right? And so, if, so, so, that, so I can say, oh, no regrets, or I can say, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. Or I can say, okay, what's this regret telling me? And what it's telling me is that it's telling me, I think, that later in life that I value kindness and more than I would have expected, more than I realize. And that kind of clarity can be a catalyst for moving forward. You see, you see what I'm saying? So, so there's nothing inherent about it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't immediately motivating, but I think what it does is that it removes the barrier. It removes the barrier of murkiness. Suddenly, the, you go from a cloudy, overcast day to a day that's a little bit crisper. I know where to go now. Now, not everybody goes, but more people will go because they can see the path. Does that make sense? So Pamela wants to know about catharsis. She, she, she I didn't. I didn't use that word, but you're sort of hearing the theme. She's, she's hearing the theme of catharsis, and I, I think there's something to that. I mean, I do think that, I do think there's something that, that there's something cathartic about disclosure. Um, but I think actually disclosure is even more than that, because going to back to what Steve said, it isn't simply like I'm taking off this heavy cloak. Okay, I think that's part of it. But I also think that part of it is, and and I, and I mean this in looking at the research that. When you convert these things into language, you, they're less menacing, all right? So it's not only that you've thrown it off, they're, it's, it's less fearsome. I'll give you a really interesting piece of research led by Sonia Lubomirsky at UC Riverside, here in Orange County. Isn't, is that in Orange County, no? Riverside County. Riverside County, same thing. It's Southern California. Um, Southern California. Um, it's a big state. Yeah, it's a big state, yeah. Um, the. Um, um, she found that when people write about negative emotions, they defang those negative emotions, right? But what about if you write about your positive emotions, your positive, positive experiences? Write about negative experiences, they become less menacing, all right? Part of it is catharsis, but part of it is sense-making. Now, what happens when you write about positive experiences? They amplify. No. Pamela says they amplify, they're less positive. Why? Because with positive experiences, you kind of like the amorphous, general, mysterious thrill. If you start saying, if I start saying, oh, let me, uh, let's say I had a great dinner, like, a, like my kids were home and we had a great family dinner. And I was like, okay, let me go write about why this was so great. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know, it, it, it becomes, you sort of drain that. And so for positive emotions, you want that mystery and thrill. For negative emotions, you want to actually... You 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 convert them into con- from abstract to concrete because that makes them less fearsome, less terrible. So don't write about your positive experiences. Honestly, just enjoy them, revel in them, love the mystery and the thrill. Don't try to make sense about why you had like a great date last night or why you love your kid. Just revel in it. Yeah. Well, gratitude. Gratitude is gratitude is interesting. I actually think that gratitude is is less about a positive experience and more about kind of taking stock of your life. Um, and so, and I think it goes to the point about purpose. That is when we, when, when we, it, it does a lot of things. First of all, it's an, gratitude is an antidote to narcissism that all of us are risk, all of us risk falling into. So gratitude is a narcissism antidote. The other thing is that gratitude is, is a reminder of our, of our, of our purpose. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, and, the, what, what, it, what it also does is that it actually, gratitude is a, is a powerful, uh, it, it's also a clarifier in that we think, oh, what am I grateful for? When I, when I understand what I'm grateful for, I understand what I, what I value the most.
1: Well, I think it also is, um, it's a good exercise when you're taking inventory, because uh, whether you're feeling lousy about yourself or you think you're failing or you have these regrets, that just may be a distortion. That may actually not be the case, and when you start to take inventory of the things that you're grateful for, the things that you have and don't yeah, have, yeah. perhaps there, you get a little bit more clarity there. Yeah, not yeah. not you, that the regret goes away. Right. Like,
0: you sort of like, like, okay, let's. Okay, so, so, like, 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 if you, I mean, if you want to successfully, if you want to accurately evaluate a business, you don't look only at the liabilities. Right. You look, you know, you look at the assets too. Right. You, but you don't look only at the assets either. You, you know, you got to, you got to have a. Balance sheet that's why they call it a balance sheet oh, so the question is um, tell me your first name Clark Clark, Clark um, reminded me that I regretfully went to law school as a misguided young man and he wanted to know whether i had a, whether the legal training changed the way you um, Change uh, so I had to unlearn any of that in in, in terms of uh, writing for the kind of writing I do now. It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, probably a little bit because um, um, like a lot of legal. Well, it depends on the kind of legal writing, but but a lot of legal writing is um, is purely about argument, and especially like like it's like, like writing briefs. It's purely about argument and. And the kind of writing I do, you want to have argument. You want to have argument, but you want to have emotion. You want to have a narrative. You want to have scenes. You know, so it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit more like that. Um, the other thing is that in legal writing, um, there is not a penalty for being boring, and in the work that I do, there is a huge fricking penalty for being boring. So, um, so I think that's. I think that's a, I think that's a big part. Of it. The one thing that I, I do think, in, re, in reflecting, that like the legal that legal training gave me, is the ability to, in your head, make both sides of an argument. I think that's actually something that, that legal training actually does does pretty well. So 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 it would be things like if you if you have um, you know, it's like, you, you're you're sort of forced to say okay, so do, do, do like take whatever uh, you you can I can I can I can try I can usually make an argument for even something that I don't believe in. Now, I don't do that publicly, but knowing, I, I, don't, I don't do that as, a, as like a, I, I do that as an exercise saying, okay, so what are the arguments, if, if, I'm gonna di- if I'm gonna disagree with myself, what are the arguments that I would use to knock down my argument? I, I think that's a pretty good skill. But beyond that, it's, um, I mean, I could have learned that and not spent three years and huge amounts of student loans.
1: All right, we are we're about at the end of our night, so uh, why don't we give a nice round of applause to Dan.
0: <laughs> Brian.
1: Okay, so uh, I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from, and where I'm going.